All right, well, if you will turn your Bibles, if you will go onto your devices and go to Acts chapter 9, we're going to continue with where we left off last week. God's strategy to grow his church takes a surprising turn in our text. Most of us are familiar with this account of Saul's conversion, who's also probably more uh, well-known as the Apostle Paul. But let's try to see this account with new eyes so that we can be once again caught off guard by this unlikely conversion. We first meet Saul back in chapter 7. He was one of the eyewitnesses of the stoning of Stephen. What's more, in chapter 8, verse 1, Luke, who would then later become a, a companion of Paul, records that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And then finally in chapter 8, verse 3, Luke records that Saul was actively ravaging the church, seeking to destroy it. Through folks like Saul, the early church was being persecuted severely and being pushed out of Jerusalem and scattered in the surrounding regions of uh, Judea and Samaria. But God used the persecution, God used the scattering for gospel advancement. The, the gospel goes into these regions, and as we saw last week with the conversion of the Ethiopian unit, the gospel starts going to the ends of the earth. Jesus is keeping his promise, and, and things are starting to look hopeful. And then in our passage, in verse 1, read, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The, the, the juxtaposition between the, the high high of the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion to this but Saul is, is jarring and, and, and maybe, maybe kind of lose a little bit of that because we, we pause between last week and this week. But if you are reading the gospels going forward, this Ethiopian eunuch is converted and then but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. Oh, it is, it is supposed to be jarring. And, 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 and maybe what's more, it then makes what we learn in our passage that much more astounding. The importance of Saul's conversion is huge. It's huge in God's program of gospel advancement in the early church. It's seen in the fact that Luke records it in three different places in Acts. We have it here. We have it in Acts chapter 22 and chapter 26. The latter two are both instances where Paul is himself recounting his own testimony of conversion. But uh, it's not just in Acts. Paul brings up his conversion uh, many times throughout his other letters. One of those instances is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. Paul writes this, But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see, Saul's conversion was certainly unique, but it's also an example for us. You see, there are theological truths on display in his conversion that are true for each and every one of us who have come to trust in Jesus. You see, I, I believe that what Paul would want us to see in his conversion, and, and really is the takeaway for our text this morning, is Paul's spiritual conversion is a spectacular display of God's mercy and grace. But 
His conversion is also an example of how God saves and commissions all those who come to believe in Jesus for eternal life. So here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at our text. We're going to look at Saul's conversion. And and then we're also going to be looking at the same time at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, so that we can understand what we're theologically seeing. So what I want you to do is hopefully you are at Acts chapter 9, and if you have a, a, a Bible, paper Bible, put Put a finger, put a, put a marker in Ephesians 2 so you're ready to go there as well, or just be ready on your, your phone or uh, device, whatever, uh, to, to also look at Ephesians chapter 2. What, what we want to do here is allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So i got three points. Number one, an enemy of Jesus, dead in sin. So let's, let's start with Acts. We're going to read the first two verses in Acts chapter 9. Here we go. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul is still on a mission to destroy the early church. Later in Acts 26 Verses 9 through 11, Paul says this about his former life. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even the foreign cities. And so our passage is one of those instances where Saul goes to the chief priest. He goes to Caiaphas, uh, Caiaphas to obtain letters to give him the authority to arrest the followers of Jesus in the synagogues in Damascus. Saul isn't content to merely persecute Christians who, who are also called uh, the way of the way here in our text. He, he's, not, he's not content to merely persecute them in Jesus. He, he takes his persecution campaign and extends it over a, a hundred miles north of Jerusalem to Damascus as well. Saul was zealous for God, believing, believing that he was honoring God by stamping out what, what he saw as a false cult religion. But Saul was spiritually dead and an enemy of God. Now, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul theologically explains what we've been seeing when he wrote this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that has now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Saul's hatred of Christianity revealed the condition of his heart. He was dead in his trespasses and sins and a rebel against the very God whose name he thought he was vindicating by persecuting these these supposed treasonous rebels, blasphemers. Believing he was doing God's work, Saul was actually following the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. And friends, what was 
spiritually true for Saul before God saved him is spiritually true for all of us until God saves us. We inherited a sinful nature from Adam. Every single one of us is born spiritually dead in our sin, blind to the gospel, and an enemy of God. Romans 6.17 says that before God saves us, we were bondservants of sin. Meaning we, we freely, freely gave ourselves over to the sinful desires of our hearts because that's what we wanted. Sin was the natural inclination of our hearts. Dead in trespasses and sins, being by nature children of wrath, means that before God saves us, we, we are, we are hard-hearted to God and to the things of God. Not simply, not simply unable to please God, to submit to God, but because of a heart of stone not wanting to, not desiring to submit to God, to please God. We're, we're, we're talking about a fundamental corruption of both volition and affection. Listen to how Paul describes the unbeliever's situation. All of our situations before God saves us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And Jesus, Jesus told us that unless one is born again by the Holy Spirit, one cannot see the kingdom of God. Saul needs God to make all the first moves. And that brings us to our second point. A disciple of Jesus, alive with Christ. Let's go back to Acts, starting with verse 3. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and all those eyes were opened. He saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. So Saul was on his way to Damascus to arrest followers of Jesus, when, when out of nowhere, a blinding light, a, a light that he would later describe as being brighter than the sun, shone, appeared from heaven. And this light that outshined the sun so shocked Saul that he fell to the ground. Having arrested Saul's attention, a, a voice speaks to him, why are you persecuting me? And Saul doesn't know who is speaking to him. So the voice says again, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. The risen Lord Jesus appears to Saul. As one commentator said, can you imagine how Saul felt at that moment? The Lord of the people who had been imprisoning the, the Lord of the people he had been imprisoning and even killing was in fact real and was in fact infinitely powerful. 
as an aside, do you also see how closely Jesus identifies with his people, his people whom he has saved and whom he is united to? Don't you see it? Don't you see it? To persecute Jesus' people, to, to oppress Jesus' people is to persecute and oppress Jesus himself. Well, now with, now, now with great irony, Jesus tells Saul to, to go into Damascus still, but, but now to receive a new commission. Can, can you imagine what is going on in Saul's mind? His journey had him going to Damascus initially in strong defiance of the gospel, but now he's still going to Damascus, but as a, a broken and blind man who's being led by the hands of others. Saul had experienced the blinding light of Jesus. Now, instead of coming and going on a path of persecution, Saul has repented. He's he's turned to Jesus. Instead of laying hold of Christians, Jesus Christ has laid hold of Saul. Let's continue reading verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias. Come in, lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard of, uh, from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind, bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, go, for he is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, isn't, isn't this remarkable? Ananias, one of the very disciples that just a few days ago Saul was going to lay hold of and arrest, was instructed by Jesus to go to Saul and lay hold of him, to lay hands on him so that Saul might regain his sight. Well, Ananias didn't, didn't want anything to do with that. He, he, had, he had heard about this Saul fellow. I mean, it, it's, it's one thing. It's one thing if persecution finds you. It's a, it's a whole other thing when you go and seek it out yourself. But Jesus wasn't having it. He again tells Ananias to go. But this time he also tells Ananias that he has chosen Saul to be his instrument, his, his vessel of gospel proclamation to Gentiles, to the kings, and to ethnic Israel. Let's continue, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So in obedience, Ananias goes. He lays hands on Saul, greets him as brother. 
and explains to Saul that Jesus has sent him so that he can regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Through Ananias' human hands, Jesus fills Saul with the Holy Spirit. And as a result, scales like thick scabs immediately fall from his eyes and he regains his sight. Saul's physical blindness brought about by Jesus was to represent his spiritual blindness. It was to show his, his inability to see who Jesus really was. But the light of the gospel has broken in and, and, and now his spiritual conversion completes. Saul is baptized. And let's not just gloss over this baptism thing. This is important here. Believer's baptism is a picture of the spiritual reality that believers are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Believer's baptism is an open and public identification with Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. In other words, Jesus went pub, uh, Saul went public. Saul went public with his faith in Jesus by being baptized. And we got to understand that in this, in this time and in this culture to go public in baptism, with your faith in Jesus, was to put yourself on the most wanted list. This was to out yourself. And now to put your life on the line for Jesus. Baptism was, was not merely a, a safe thing to do to celebrate that you love Jesus. This was also to put your life in danger. But Saul loved Jesus now and was willing to go public with his faith in baptism. From Jesus seeking out and confronting Saul to Jesus giving Saul spiritual eyes to see to Jesus filling Saul with the Holy Spirit to Saul being baptized in obedience, we see Saul's total conversion on display in this passage. And in Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, Paul theologically explains what we've been seeing. He wrote this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How, how, does, how does Saul go from but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus, to publicly identifying himself with Jesus? But God. But God. Listen, if it is not evident... Saul was not pursuing Jesus. He was persecuting Jesus. Jesus sought out and found Saul. Jesus seeks and saves the lost. Romans 5.10 says, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Friends, the scriptures are clear. We did not love God first, but he loved us and sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Friends, salvation is a work of God's grace alone. God makes us alive. We play no part in our salvation. The only thing that we contribute is our sin that made it necessary. Salvation is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast and so that God alone receives the glory. Now, you might be thinking, you know, Saul's conversion seems kind of like a unicorn, seems like a little bit of a one of a kind. If that's you, listen, sure, Paul's, Saul's conversion was unique, but friends, come on, we all have unique testimonies because we're all different. And so God uniquely meets us, each and every one of us, where we're at. But, but that said, look, here's the important thing. Here is the important truth. Though we are all different, what it takes for God to save us is all the same. Apart from faith in Jesus, we're all, each and every one of us, notorious rebels against God's throne, deserving his just wrath. And so, brothers and sisters, it takes the same blood of Jesus to save us as it did to save Saul. Listen to how Paul likens how God saves us to how God created the universe in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Paul wrote, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How, how, does, how does God save hard-hearted rebels to his throne? God sovereignly speaks powerful universe-creating light-producing words in the dark dead hearts to bring into existence new spiritual creations. Listen, what was spiritually true for how God saved Saul is spiritually true for how God saves any of us. If you love Jesus, it's because God, like he did with the universe, sovereignly spoke you into spiritual existence. But Jesus not only took all the first steps to save Saul, but he also commissioned him. So this, this goes to our last point commissioned by Jesus, saved for good works. So starting with the second half of verse 19, we read, For some days Saul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who, call, who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in his strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul's conversion included a commission. Now, we, we first heard about, about this back in verse 15. Jesus told Ananias that Saul would be his chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. So what we're starting to see here now is that being played out, that, that commissioning starting to, to, to work itself out. 
ironically, Damascus, where Saul intended to go and root out disciples of Jesus, is actually where he first starts proclaiming the gospel in order to make disciples of Jesus. The, The gospel just turns our worlds upside down. What's, what's maybe more is that so skilled in his understanding of the Old Testament, Saul was able to confound uh, many of his Jewish peers by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He preached for several days, and people were clearly coming to faith because he now has become a threat to the Jewish leaders. What a reversal. Let's continue reading verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but Saul's disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Roles quickly become reversed here now as Saul is is the target of the Jewish leader's persecution. And on threat of his life for preaching the gospel, Saul is forced to uh, flee Damascus. Verse 25, I think, has got something significant for us here because it says, it says that his disciples, Saul's disciples, helped him to escape. And I just want to affirm what we are seeing here, if, it, if it's not clear, is that already, even as a recent convert, Saul was making disciples who, who were now following the Lord Jesus. If we needed proof that, that Jesus has had the transformative effect upon this man's life. We're seeing it. Let's continue reading verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So Saul went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill Saul. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So Saul flees Damascus. He heads a little over 100 miles south now, back home to Jerusalem. And once again, his former reputation as Saul the persecutor has, has uh, well preceded him. Disciples are afraid of him. They, 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 haven't, they haven't seen his testimony. They haven't heard about what Jesus is already starting to do with him. All they know is his past and are afraid that he's going to continue on that trajectory of being a persecutor. Now Barnabas, true to his name, son of encouragement, steps up and vouches for Saul to the apostles. And because of Barnabas, uh, Saul is welcomed into, com- into the community of faith in Jerusalem. And so he continues to boldly preach Jesus. Again, we are, we are yet again seeing evidence that Jesus has saved him. He, he just can't stay silent. He just, he just has to proclaim Christ crucified to any who will listen. And the gospel again gets traction through Saul's preaching to the degree that the, the Hellenist Jew, uh, Jew, uh, Jewish leaders now also want to kill him. But through the assistance of the disciples, through the brothers and sisters there in Jerusalem, Paul escapes. And our passage ends with this resulting conclusion in verse 31. So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. 
This is one of these breaks that we get throughout Acts as we transition from one major narrative to another is the result is the church multiplied. Jesus is keeping his promise. Friends, Jesus sought Saul out. He saved Saul, and then he commissioned Saul to good works. Now, in Ephesians 2.10, Paul theologically explains what we've been seeing. He wrote this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, whereas... Before being saved, we walked according to the ways of this world, Ephesians 2.1. But now we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You, you, you see, we, we start from walking according to the ways of this world before God has saved us and and. But God saves us, and now we end with walking in the good works that he has prepared before, uh, beforehand for us. Now, if you're reading from another translation, maybe NIV, the end of verse 10 just says to, to do, to do them. So it kind of misses the play on words. Um, I encourage you to check that out. Friends, what was spiritually true for Saul, his conversion resulted in commission, is spiritually true for all of us whom God saves. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, of which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let, let's be, we, we must be emphatically clear here, though. Good works do not save good works are the necessary result of being saved. The, the good works that we walk in come in verse 10, not in verse 1. Good works are a result of, but God has saved us. Good works are the fruit, not the root of salvation. Now, you may be thinking, gosh, we aren't saved to the same good works as Saul, though. And my response would be, that's both true and not true. Certainly, Saul was called to be God's instrument for gospel advancement in very unique ways and in a very specific time and place. But, but friends, the, the good works that God created all of us in Christ Jesus for are nothing less than making disciples of Jesus. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then listen, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then in verse 20, Paul wrote this. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Listen, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you have been commissioned by Jesus, like Saul was, to make disciples. To be an ambassador for Christ. God making his appeal through us. I think there's good reason to conclude that the good works that we are saved to are more than that, 
but they are certainly not less than the Great Commission. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul says we are saved to good works in this way. He says, God the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that, and for this purpose, we should be holy and blameless before him. It's not less than the Great Commission, but the good works that we have been saved for are, is much more than that. The good works that we and Saul are saved to is also becoming more like Jesus. Saying no to sin, progressively saying no to sin, and progressively saying yes to righteousness. Paul described this in, in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, when he wrote that the gospel trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. There's more. The, the, the good works that we are saved to is the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us. It's the particular grace gifts that God has given you to bless the body. It's living out the one another commands that show Jesus as awesome. It's loving your neighbor as yourself. Friends, when God saves us, he recreates us for the purpose of good works. Saul's conversion was certainly unique. But it's also an example for us. As we've seen Paul's teaching in Ephesians interpret his conversion, we've seen how there are theological truths on display that, that are true for each and every one of us who have come to trust in Jesus. And let me encourage you, if if you're, if you're listening to this and you're, you're watching this and, and that's you, you have come to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It is also then an evidence that God has made you alive with Christ. And, and I want to encourage you, when we come to an end of a, of a passage like this, when we're reading through an, an Acts passage and we're seeing God's, God's wonderful work of conversion on display, or we're looking through an Ephesians 2 passage and we're seeing the wonderful work of God's conversion on display by his grace alone. When we come to a passage like this, we come to the end, a sermon like this, and let me encourage you that our response should be worship. Our response should be just thankfulness. Thank you. I love you. And I just want to worship you. Friends, this should come to the end of ourselves just wanting to now thank God alone for what he has done to, take, to make an enemy his friend. To make a treasonous rebel his son, his daughter. It should cause us to want to worship. To thank him with everything we have. Paul, Paul says elsewhere that whether we eat or whether we drink, we can, we can do all things to the glory of God. Friends, we can worship God, and we will in a minute. We're going to worship him through singing, but friends, I want to encourage you that we just worship him, thank him, give him praise. Friends, I, I want to encourage you that if you are watching this, listening to this, and that is not you, and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and I, I want to tell you, Friend, thank you for watching this. Thank you for listening to this. 
But I want to warn you that you are not going on a right path. But I want to tell you that, that the availability of what Christ accomplished is for you. There's no hoops that you have to jump through, no, no test that you have to pass. Jesus is not standoffish towards you, wagging his finger at you, tish, tish, tisking you. Friends, Jesus is inviting you to come. His yoke is easy, his burden, his light, his heart is gentle and lowly, and he wants to offer you rest for your soul. I want to encourage you to go to Jesus. Would you consider humbly admitting your need for a savior because of your sin? turning away from your sin and turning to Jesus. Friends, there are, there are just some astounding miracles that we see, some astounding things that we see in Acts. But, but the greatest miracle in Acts is spiritual conversion. And Paul's spiritual conversion is a spectacular display of God's mercy and grace. But his conversion is also an example of how God saves and commissions all those who come to believe in Jesus for eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a text like this. Thank you for texts like this. Acts 9, we get to see an illustration. We have to read through and hear the, the testimony of a man's life, see how you saved him. And then we get, to, we get to see in your preserved word in a passage like Acts, we get, to, we get to have the interpretation of what was going on there in all of its fullness. And in and, and Saul's heart and mind, what, what, what God did alone to change that, that dastardly heart towards one who loved Jesus and was eager to, to give up his life for proclaiming him. Thank you for these passages. I, I pray, Father, would you help us? Those whom you have saved, would we, would we be brought to, a, once again, the end of ourselves and be ready, eager, just overflowing in thankfulness and gratitude in our hearts for all that you've done? Father, I, I pray Oh, please, Father, for those that have not trusted in Jesus, would you do the work that only you can do, and would you, would you save them? Would you cause them to be stopped in their tracks like Saul was? Would you blind them with the light, the glorious light of the gospel, and then give them new eyes to see, to see, to savor, to love and enjoy Jesus? Father, we give you thanks. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.